Amen. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, take them and turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. I want to start with kind of a um, an explanation of why the title is there and why there's a DNA strand um, on there. So, um, and it's going to, it's going to take me a minute to get there. That's not going to surprise any of you who've been around for a little bit. All right. But I want to take a circuitous route there by talking about a guy that has seen a recent resurgence in popularity, um, that he's, he's been out of the public eye really for like almost 20 years. But suddenly there are Twitter feeds that are quoting him that have thousands of followers. The number three podcast on iTunes right now is dedicated to him and can tell us how to cope in a chaotic world like we live in today. The number one grossing documentary film of last year was about him. And currently the number three movie in theaters is a biopic piece about his relationship with a journalist. Anybody know who I'm talking about? That's what I'm talking about, this guy, right? Mr. Rogers, right? An amazing thing. He's been gone since 2001. It's his show was kind of on and off, and um, they played it in syndication for a while. But here's the thing, that PBS took it off the air because popularity-wise, no one really wanted to watch it much anymore. So he took it off the air. They added new stuff in there. Um, Super Y, some of you know that, have been subjected to that. All right. Other shows that have been on there. And then suddenly within the last year or so, there has been this resurgence of popularity and thoughtfulness. Now, you probably know some things about Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers was a minister. In fact, he was ordained by the Presbyterian Church to do ministry in television. And so he always considered his television show a ministry, even though he didn't wasn't he wasn't explicit with following Jesus in that. The movie that's out currently, that's right behind Frozen 2 and um, Ford versus Ferrari, is a biopic piece about a reporter, cynical reporter, that went to see Mr. Rogers and interview him and came away stunned by how much it changed him. Now, here's an interesting thing. Uh, when they went to find, I mean, who did you get to play Fred Rogers, right? And so they went to the what could be argued the great or the most successful for sure, but one of the greatest actors of this generation, who is Tom Hanks, right? And people started to show this picture around of Tom Hanks and Mr. Rogers. And he, when the first um, trailer came out, people were like, man, he looks like Mr. Rogers. He's acting like Mr. Rogers. In fact, upstairs I was showing this and so I was like, well, I thought that was the same person in two different pictures. Like it's it's him. I mean, it's obviously Tom Hanks, but he looks that way. Well, recently, I don't know if you've seen this or not, there was a recent interview with Tom Hanks. You know how they do press for the movies, and they tell about the movies that are coming up, and they talk about the making of it, and he was talking about what it's like to put on the red cardigan and to you know, put the shoes on and all of that. And they got to a point, they said, well, we have a surprise for you. I don't know whether you know this or not, but we have discovered that you are related to Mr. Rogers. Did you might hear that? Did you all know that? So the people at Ancestry.com, in fact, I have the chart here. I know y'all are really excited about that. I mean, genealogical charts are the bomb. That's what you all think, right? No. All right, so here it is. But Tom Hanks have the same, they're sixth cousins. Tracing it back to Johannes Meffert in 1732 who immigrated to the United States. What's crazy to me about that is, all of the amount of information that is out there that let people do things like this. 
Um, I was talking with Diane upstairs, and they were talking about Tom Hanks also found out when he was filming The Saving Mr. Banks, he's somehow related to Walt Disney. So I don't know. Tom Hanks apparently is related to everybody in the United States of America. So if you want to try that, right? So what does that have to do with what we're talking about? People have always been interested in genealogy, in ancestry, in family histories. But there has been a surge in recent years for two main reasons. First of all, records have been digitized all across the country, so you don't have to go to obscure courthouses to find birth and death records. You can sit at your computer at home and find your ancestors' birth and death records and tombstones for generations. The second thing is companies started doing at-home DNA testing where you take a little vial and you spit into it and you send it off and somebody with the worst job in America, spit collector, (laughs) takes it and pulls the DNA out and they can tell you all kinds of things about yourself based on DNA. So their company's Ancestry.com does it. And the most popular with more than 10 million customers is 23andMe that tells the history of your ancestry based on your DNA. Now that comes from that all human beings have 23 pairs of chromosomes. Y'all didn't know we were going to biology class today, but that's where we are, right? And they tell us the lineage of where we came from. They tell us the traits, why we have the color hair we have, all of those kind of things. So this Christmas, I thought it'd be cool to talk about the ancestry of Jesus. Who he is, where he came from. In fact, um, we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about Jesus' genealogical record. And all of God's people said, yeah, I hope that's what you think, all right? I told somebody backstage when I did my first draft of this message, it was 45 minutes on one verse of genealogy. And they said, that sounds like not that much fun, all right? But we're going to do some really cool things over the next few weeks. In fact, I want to tell you this. So I've been preaching now. I think this is my 19th Christmas to preach. And in 19 Christmases to preach, I mean, you preach the same kind of, we're all preaching about Jesus' birth, right? I've never done anything like what we're doing over the next four weeks. And so I'm really, really excited about it. And we're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 1. Over the next few weeks, we're going to hang out in Matthew chapter 1, the first 17 verses of it. And I want to remind you or tell you, if you aren't aware, a few things about this book that you're looking at, this book of Matthew. First of all, and this sometimes seems like, well, why do we need to say this? But we need to be reminded of this, that this is an account of the life of Jesus that is called a gospel. And that means that it is good news, that the book of Matthew is primarily good news. We also must understand that it is the first book of the New Testament, which means it is vitally important in its placement in the Bible. Now, the purpose Matthew has, writing to a primarily Jewish audience, which is important and why genealogy is here, is to write about what Jesus did, how he came to earth, what Jesus said, and what he accomplished in his death and resurrection. And a couple of things to understand about the gospel of Matthew and also the genealogy that he will give us, we'll talk about in a moment, is it is not comprehensive, it is not chronological, it is not giving us every detail of fact. The whole book is not trying to give us everything that happened 
happened in Jesus' life, but it is also not chronological. Matthew is not trying to give you this happened on this date and that date and it went from there. Matthew is one of how many Gospels? Four. I'm just saying if you're awake out there, right? One of four Gospels. It's the same story from different perspectives for different audiences. The book of John emphasizes Jesus as the Son of God. The book of Luke emphasizes Jesus as the Son of Man. Mark emphasizes Jesus as the suffering servant. And Matthew is pointed towards emphasizing Jesus is the sovereign king. Just a couple of notes about Matthew that you may not be aware of. First of all, it is, according to tradition and all the histories that we see, the most widely used gospel in the first two centuries. More people use Matthew than any other, and that's why it's first. That's why Matthew was placed first. It was the most widely used, and so that's what they wanted to lead off the New Testament as they worked through and prayed through what's there. And so that's why I think if the position of Matthew being the first gospel is important, shouldn't what Matthew starts with be important? The answer to that is yes, all right? I'm just going to help you out there, right? What Matthew starts with is important to us. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is what he says. He says, An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So when Matthew begins to write his story of the life of Jesus, the first words he chooses are vitally important. He says an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He starts the whole thing telling us this is going to be about Jesus, but I'm going to start with an understanding of where he came from and who he is. By the way, there's an interesting little note there. That first part that says an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The account of the genealogy, those words there literally are a book of Genesis about Jesus. It's the same word that's used for the Old Testament book Genesis. And that's important because what's happening with Matthew is they are saying this is a new creation. This is a new day. This is a new moment, a new start, a fresh start. The story that started in Genesis has a pivot point. The story that began the entire Bible has a pivot point. Something changes, and it changes right here and right now. What's also fascinating is that those two words, when you put them together, are literally the Bible start. Now, he's not saying that the Old Testament is unimportant. He's not saying that we shouldn't read the Old Testament. But what he's saying is the new day begins here. Jesus' coming is the greatest game changer in history. The universe does not center around you. No amens there, just to, okay. The universe does not center around you. The universe does not center around your generation, whether you're a boomer or buster or Xer or millennial or wire or Z. I don't know what they're going to do after Z, but something's got to come. Double Z? I don't know. doesn't revolve around your generation. The, the universe does not revolve around the United States of America, as much as I love being a part of this country. The universe revolves around Jesus. History revolves around Jesus. 
And the significance of his coming is described even in those words. A account of the new beginning, of the new start, of the genesis. In fact, those two words are the words used in the Greek Bible for the first book of the Bible. The book of Genesis. Now we're getting the book of Jesus. Now remember, this is primarily to a Jewish audience. And for the Jewish audience, what's about to come, the genealogy, the history, is of vital significance to them. Their significance, their status, was tied to where they came from. It was attached to whose they were. If you were living in that time frame, if you were a man, you had to know your tribe. You had to know your status. You had to know what your property rights were. You had to know what your heritage was. In fact, in the Old Testament, towards the end of the Old Testament, there is this description of what happens when they come back from the exiles. And God's like, hey, I want to be a priest. And they go, what's your ancestry? They can't prove their ancestry. And they're told, too bad, you can't be a priest. Like It was vital to know this information. So it says this is an account of the genealogy, and then it tells us of who it is, of Jesus. Now that's important, because Jesus here is a common name in his day. They didn't name him some name that nobody else had ever heard of before. There isn't a secret language that comes with him. It is one of the most common names of his day to be called Jesus. In fact, the Jewish form of Jesus is Joshua. And the people that knew him and around him would have talked to him in that way. The identification of Jesus here is an identification of his human nature. That the one who came, his common self, was a human being like you and like me. That he had a human body, that he actually existed in the flesh. That he became tired, that he became thirsty, that he became hungry, that he became full of pain. That he understands what it's like to have pain in his life. He understands what it's like when things hit him, it hurt. When he didn't eat, he got hungry. When he didn't drink, he got thirsty. He has experienced what you've experienced. Achiness, colds, sickness. Max Lucado famously in his, um, in his writing about God came near says that he probably had acne. It's hard to imagine Jesus with a zit. But he was fully human in every way physically. He had a human mind. Luke 2.52 tells us that he increased in wisdom. That means he knew what it meant to learn. He knew what it meant to study. He knew how he had to, as a child, he had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to eat. He had to learn how to progress, to build, to develop. He had a human mind. He had human emotions. Some of the words that are used to describe what Jesus is or who he is said that he was marveled at things, that he wept when his friend died, that he rejoiced. That he loved. Here's the thing that just saying the word Jesus there helps us to understand. It identifies his human nature. The humaneness of who he is. The humanity of what he was. He was 100% like you and me. He experienced the struggles that you and I experience with the limited form of our physical being. And that's important. Because if he wasn't completely like us, if he wasn't completely human, there was no way he could represent us. 
There's no way he could stand in our place. There is no way he could be an example for us. If we had a God that did not understand us, who had not been human, we could not have an example before us. Scripture teaches us that he understands everything that happens in our lives. That he has been tempted in every way that a human being can be tempted and yet resisted that temptation. But he understands the temptation. Sometimes people ask the questions, Could Jesus have actually sinned? The reality is the scripture never gives us a definitive answer about that. Although what I would say is if he couldn't, it wasn't a real temptation. And scripture says he was tempted in every way. When he was in the desert and he hadn't eaten for 40 days, sometimes we romanticize that. Yeah, yeah, but it's Jesus. You try not eating for 40 days. And realize the physical limitations that you have are the same that he had. He was hungry. And I'm not talking skip breakfast before Thanksgiving lunch hungry. I'm talking hungry. He got thirsty. And I'm not talking I haven't had anything on my desk to drink for the last 20 minutes. Like I think I'm a little parched. I'm talking like thirsty. But verse 1 says that it's an account of the genealogy of Jesus. And then Matthew does something he doesn't do in the rest of the book. He never in the rest of the book puts these two words together. Jesus Christ. That's not his last name. That's not his given name from his father. That is his title. And the word Christ means the anointed one. The Messiah It's the only place in Matthew where he uses both together. The human nature of who Jesus is and the divine understanding that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that would be the deliverer, the promised one. It's a reference not only to his place as a human savior, but also as a divine agent of God. From the book of Matthew all the way through the book of Revelation, the divinity of Jesus, the God Nature of Jesus is described again and again. We don't get very far in the book of Matthew even before it describes it again. In Matthew one twenty three, it calls him Emmanuel, God with us. And throughout the book of Matthew, throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus' power over disease. Jesus' power over nature. Jesus' power over sin. Jesus' power over death. It's important because only an infinite God could bear the full penalty of our sin against an infinite God. Because salvation only comes from the Lord. There is no other place to find it. And that only God could mediate between the Father and us. So Matthew starts his gospel saying, this is an account of Jesus the Christ. An understanding of a human being made in the image of man who was also fully God and the anointed one that would come to save. And he gives us two On the front end that are a part of his lineage. Before he even gets into the 42 that he'll list. First of all he calls him the son of David. Matthew uses that title for Jesus more than anyone else in the New Testament. And that's because he is writing to Jewish people that knew that David's line would reign forever. This means that he's of royal descent. He is literally of kingly race. It's a messianic title. Now what do we know about David from the Old Testament? What does the Old Testament tell us about David? He was a man after God's own heart. What else does it tell us about him? He was the greatest king of Israel. 
Why was he the greatest king of Israel? Because he was a warrior king that destroyed God's enemies and he unified God's people like they had never been unified before. And when it talks about Jesus being the son of David, it means that Jesus is coming to defeat God's enemies and to unify the kingdom of God like it has never been unified before. It harkens back to the promises God made to David, saying, remember what I said to David? That's what I'm going to do through Jesus. For instance, 2 Samuel chapter 7 says this, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. This is to David. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He also says um, over in Psalm 132 verses 11 through 13. The Lord swore an oath to David. A promise he will not abandon. I will set one of your offspring on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my decrees that I will teach them. Their sons will also sit on your throne forever. Reminds us of the promises that God had given to David. That there would be a continual seed that would endure to the year. An honored son that will reign on the throne. We heard this earlier. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given. And the government will be on his shoulders. You will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. But I love the next part as much as I love that. Go to the next part of that, Josh. The dominion will be vast. And its prosperity will never end. He, that's Jesus, will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of the armies will accomplish this. And then in Ezekiel chapter 37, he reminds us that my servant David will be king over them and there will be one shepherd for all of them. They will live in the land that I gave my servant Jacob where your fathers live. They will live in it forever with their children and grandchildren. And my servant David will be their prince forever. So the Old Testament people, the Jewish people of their day knew that David was coming back in the form of an ancestor, in the form of an heir. And Matthew says, this is it. He is here. But he says not only is he the son of David, he says also that he is the son of of Abraham. Son of Abraham. God had promised Abraham that he would form a people through him, that he would establish a kingdom through him, and that he would expand it to all nations through him. When people talk about the great introductions of the New Testament, one of the ones that always comes to mind, and perhaps you know this, is the book of John, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Nothing's been made. It hadn't been made through Him. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. My guess is, when you think about the greatest openings of the Gospels, the first one that comes to mind isn't Matthew. Like, all those names? Because it is. There are like 42 names coming next. Some of you recognize, and you're like, ooh, I'm glad I remember that one. Some of you are like, I have no idea who that is. But I would argue, 
for the Jewish mindset, the people that had been waiting for generations to hear that Jesus was here, that the Messiah had arrived, that God had sent his promise, that the first verse of Matthew was the greatest verse they had ever heard. This is the story of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. And this is the reason. Because it's wrapped up in one more little detail of the name of Jesus. Because the name of Jesus was a common name. It was Joshua in their language. Though they would have said it was Yeshua. And what it meant when you put it together was when you parse out the meaning. You know that, right? Names have meanings, right? My name, I've told you, means from the island, which is obviously a description of me. When you parse out the meaning of Jesus' name, it means the Lord is salvation. Yahweh saves. And what the name of Jesus reminds us is what this first verse told the Jewish people that had been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Who had gathered on the banks of rivers, who had gathered in synagogues, who had waited for generation upon generation. That had been waiting 400 years for a definitive word from the Lord. They were waiting and waiting and waiting. And Matthew says, salvation is here. Let me tell you the story of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. It's not just a story that Jewish people need to hear, though. It's a story that we all desperately need. Genesis chapter 3 reminds us of the fact that our ancestor, when you think about our ancestry, when you think about where does it trace back to, I don't know who my eighth great-grandfather is. But I know my line goes all the way back to Adam. And he... And Eve chose to walk away from the Lord. And I have the spiritual legacy of my ancestry built into my 23 and me. I have sin built in. I don't know that it would show up on the DNA test coding thing, but it's there. And you and I, every one of us that has been born since that day, have chosen our own path and chosen our own way. And we have walked away from the Lord. And the only hope we have is that Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham, is who he says he is. That he is the salvation of the Lord. In Genesis chapter 3, right after all of the uh, sin has happened and they're beginning to give the, the punishment for that, God looks at Adam and Eve and he says to them that one day, speaks to the serpent, you will bite the heel of my descendant, but he will crush your head. And what Matthew is announcing in this moment of Matthew 1.1 is... That the head of the serpent has been crushed. And that Jesus is the reason for that. Salvation is here because Jesus is here. We live in a world that has 
so many things wrong with it. And that's because of my sin and yours and the sin of every single person on this planet. The real issues is not economic, it's not personalities, it's not any of that. The real issue is sin. And the only hope, the only solution is Jesus the Christ, Son of David, Son of Abraham. And if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then I challenge you today to look to Him, to seek Him, to understand Him and to know Him. I challenge you to take this Christmas season and ask the question, is this Jesus who He says He is? Is this Jesus who He claims to be? If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I just want to ask you the question, do you treat Him as such? Do you follow Him without hesitation? Do you learn from His ways? Do you read His book? Do you follow what He's called you to do? Over the next three weeks, we're going to delve into his ancestry and look at what it teaches us about ourselves and how God is redemptive. The reality is the the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 shows us that Jesus came at the right moment in the right way for the right reason and that we can be saved because of it. So as we finish today, I just wonder, what will you do with Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham? Let's pray together.